We're in Isaiah 19. Uh, this is a message about judgment for Egypt. Um, that's, that's a true statement as far as it goes. It's not, it doesn't go far enough. And there are some other things we'll need to say, and they'll become clear as we go. But um, we know that these nations in Isaiah 13 to 23 are uh, pagan nations. We know that one way or another, Israel has had trouble with each one of them. Uh, and so that God should declare judgment to come on them is not a surprise to us. It's what we would expect. But what we need to understand is that all of this is written to call Israel to trust the Lord. Uh, as we've said, these are nations that either Israel feared or trusted in. And in this case, in Egypt, it's going to be the latter condition, the latter situation, that they thought that Egypt was always going to be their um, uh, ally, that they were going to be able to go to Egypt and get help and protection and so God has to take that away from them so that they will be left with nothing to trust but God alone. And <laughs> it's always a little bit shocking. Well, I guess I need to pray about this. As, <laughs> as if <laughs> I hadn't thought of that earlier, and, and I hadn't. Yes? Well, all we have left is to trust in the Lord. You never had anything else. <laughs> yes? So... This is where Israel is, this is where Isaiah is in Isaiah 19 and 20. And as we have on the screen, Isaiah 13 to 23 seem to be saying that since the glory of the nations, Assyria and Babylon, equals nothing, and since the scheming of the nations, chapters 14 to 18 that we've just come through, equals nothing, and since the wisdom of the, na of, of the nations, chapters 19 and 20, equals nothing, don't trust the nations. And we have more to say because we're going on through chapter 23. But we're talking about Egypt, and I, I need to set the stage. Why is Egypt so important? Um, here, here are the passages we've come through, and we're now coming to Egypt itself. Uh, these are the nations we've just been looking at. Um, you see Aram, which is part, parts of Aram are in modern-day Lebanon, what's left of it, and part of it is in Syria. Damascus is the major city in that area. You have the, the Phoenicians up north. Later in this section, we're going to talk about Tyre and what, um, what Tyre is going to face in light of the judgment of God. You see on the right-hand side, middle, you have Ammon and Moab and the Edom. Uh, all of these come in for judgment, and Philistia. So all of these... Are, are peoples who created trouble for Israel in one way or another. Are you with me here? Some of them we've already dealt with. But what you don't perhaps see is the Assyrian Empire. Now, that visual is not there to spend a lot of time with it, but this is this time span. These are the kings of Assyria in the time span that we're talking about in the book of Isaiah. Are, are you with me so far? Yes? Some of those names you might have run into, Sargon, perhaps, or, um, pardon, Sennacherib, good. Yeah, um, Tiglath-Pileser has a special place in my life. I won't tell you about now. It's another story for another day. But uh, it's how I learned to say I don't know. 
But uh, 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 here is the Assyrian Empire in the days, roughly this period that we're talking about. You see Judah in the lower left-hand corner there. The Assyrian Empire was the great power of the, of the day in which Isaiah lived. This, this map actually represents a period after the time of Isaiah, but it's, it's growing in this, in this way uh, at the time. What you'll see is Assyria reaching all the way to Egypt. Yes? Egypt is still, as we're, as we're in Isaiah, Egypt is still a, a, uh, an independent nation. Uh, here is Egypt itself. Um, and a little bit later, we'll mention some city names, and there will be another map that will point us to that, to those places. But here are the kings that we're dealing with. You've heard of none of these. Um, uh, Sheshonk is the only one that shows up in the Bible. Shishak? Yes? Pardon? Yeah, Shoshank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We're going to get out of here. This is degenerating quickly. Uh, but So we're looking at Egypt. Uh, and let me go back to the map. Um, you see the River Nile there, and then you see the Delta. Yes? The, the, the Delta is what's called Lower Egypt. And the, uh, the River Nile is what's called Upper Egypt. It's, it's a canyon that stretches for hundreds of miles. Uh, the, the green strip that you see, you, you, the dark green strip that you see, is all of Upper Egypt. But Upper and Lower Egypt were always felt to be two different entities. You have perhaps seen a crown of the king of Egypt, and it has kind of a, well, no markers today. All right, that's all right. It has, it has a, 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 a part that's low in the front and rises very high, straight up in the back, and then there's a cone in the middle. Remember this? Those are the, the crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt. And when they wore that double crown, thank you. Now that I've done it, I don't need it. <laughs> thank you. Uh, well, it's here Beverly. Yeah, Beverly's always got what you need. Uh, um, uh, that's, so at the time that we're dealing with, there's actually civil war going on in Egypt. And the two are striving against each other. The northern... The northern, lower Egypt king is fighting against a Nubian dynasty in the south. So the 22nd dynasty in the north is fighting the 25th dynasty in the south. Are you with me here? <laughs> and, and the southern king conquered the northern king, but the, but the southern king never established any, any government over the north. So the, the, the northern defeated king stayed in his office and, and went on. Everything's just going crazy in that day. Can't sound familiar at all? Yes? All right. So as we start this, we're, we're looking at a time where there is civil war in Egypt. Egypt, uh, one of the hieroglyphic signs that you probably have seen and will remember, it's very common. There are two of them. One is a a cross with a, a hook or a, 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 a loop on the top. Yes? You've seen that. They hold it out. It's an ankh, 
and it's the sign of life. And when the sun god is giving life to the pharaoh, he holds the ankh, A-N-K-H. You remember Tut Ankh, Amun? Yeah? Well, he's holding life out to the king. Does this make sense to you? The other one that you probably have seen is a feather. Yes or no? Right. It, it looks kind of like this. Um, Jim, what would Egypt be having the Civil War over? Who's going to control? Uh, okay. Yeah. Who's going to have power? What, what, what is all national life about? Who's going to have power? Who's going to be in control? Right. This is, this is the feather. I didn't draw it properly, uh, but um, it's a feather. And in, he, in, in Egyptian, it meant ma'at. Well, that helped. Amen? Yeah. And, <laughs> it's spelled M-A-A-T, ma'at. It's two syllables, ma'at. The word, among many other things, meant order. Um, order. O-R-D-E-R. For Egypt, the highest value was an ordered life. Everything should be ordered. Everything should be in proper place and proper balance. Everything is ordered. Ma'at. Are you with me here? God's taking Ma'at away from Egypt. So, chapter 19, 1 to 4, the oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. Uh, Let's go back to the map just a minute. What does that map tell you about weather in Egypt? Yeah. Anything else? Uh, here I am with Egyptian people sitting here. Ninety-five percent desert. Only five percent agriculture. Number one. Is, yeah. Number two, two inches of rain per, per year. <laughs> two inches of rain per year. Period. He says. In the, in the northern hemisphere, the prevailing winds are from the southwest and go to the northeast. Are you with me here? Yes or no? Irrigations from the Nile. Irrigations from the Nile. If they, did, if they couldn't irrigate, and by the way, that required, in, in ancient times, it required a strong central government to maintain the irrigation system. So uh, if you've got civil war uh, and you're in a desert area, you don't expect, first of all, you're going to have a hard time carrying on agriculture because you can't irrigate, right? Because you're at war. Are you with me here? And secondly, God's riding on a cloud? What's that mean? Something's coming to Egypt that hasn't normally come. Are you with me? In um, Canaanite literature, the God who rides on the cloud is Baal. And Baal is the god of the thunderstorm. Yes? How did, how did Israel, how did God save Israel uh, in, the, in the wars, especially in the book of, of Joshua? Do you remember it all? Yes, no, move your head. So you do, you just forget. In the Valley of Ijalon, do you remember this? I go back and say what we've said before. Read the Bible. It sheds enormous light on the commentaries. So, so in Joshua 10, they're fighting against the, the um, Canaanites, whole coalition. 
from the south. How did God go to war for Israel? With the thunderstorm. And more died from the hail and the thunderstorm than died in battle. Do you recall this? Yes, now? Right? Uh, The thunderstorm. God controls the weather. So that Egypt, which I I assume they have thunderstorms from time to time, uh, but not very commonly. They do have snow sometimes. Snow, okay. Years ago they had snow at the pyramids. At the pyramids. What a, what a sight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, well, that would have stopped Texas too. So <laughs> the, the, the larger issue is that God's doing something that is so new, so different, it could only be God. Yes? So, again, verse 1. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud, and he is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. Well, this is Isaiah speaking in the 8th century B.C. Yes or no? This is... Uh, 700 years since the Exodus. God did some things that made the, tre- the, the, the idols tremble then, too. But you see, brothers and sisters, what God has done in the past really is a promise of what he will do in the future. But he does it differently each time so that it's clear that it's God's work. It's not just happenstance. So the, the idols tremble in his presence. The heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians. By the way, when the Lord is fighting for you, one of the things that he does, watch this in the Old Testament, when, he, when the Lord is fighting for you, he turns your enemies against themselves. Um, I know you've been thinking in the book of Haggai for quite a bit recently, and chapter 2 has been probably foremost in your thinking. You've probably been memorizing Haggai. But uh, let, let's just turn there for a minute. Haggai chapter 2. Turn to Matthew and turn two books left. Haggai, yeah. Um, Two books left, and you'll have Haggai. Um, Can't make my fingers work. Three books left. Um, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So, Haggai chapter 2. There are four messages in Haggai, three of them in the second chapter. The fourth message begins in verse 20. We won't pick it up there. Pick it up, though, in verse 21. Haggai 2.21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and say, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms of the nations. Haggai, by the way, is 520 B.C., 516 B.C. So he's another 200 years beyond, beyond Isaiah. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down. Every, everyone by the sword of another. My, my text says everyone by the sword of another. Each one by the, hand of his, by the sword of his brother in Hebrew. The person that you ought to be able to trust has become your enemy and is the one who kills you. Are you with me here? We've just come through Memorial Day weekend and... 
on Facebook all week. There have been all kinds of things about World War II and so on. The one thing you did not expect if you were in that in the invasion of Normandy, you never would expect that the man next to you is shooting you. You're all trained in a different direction, yes? So how do you know when God is at work? God is at work when he makes your, even your enemies enemies of themselves. So he goes back to Isaiah 19, verse 2. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will each fight against his brother, and each against his neighbor. The neighbor is one who uh, you are in covenant relationship with. Owes you loyalty. City against city and kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them and I will confound their strategy so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. Judgment on the nation. Why, what is going on here, though, when he talks about, in verse 3, I will confound their strategy? He's going to pick this up again in verses 5 and following. Um, so let me go back to our outline here. Verses 1 to 4, civil war in Egypt. Um, Egypt was marked internationally as a nation of great wisdom. Uh, if you thought about wisdom in the ancient Near East, you thought about Egypt. Uh, wisdom literature, you know it from primarily Job's Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Wisdom literature is, um, is a literature that had, had a long history already in, the book, in, in, in Egypt. In Proverbs, there is a passage. Does it begin in chapter 26 or 27 of Proverbs? Um, that actually quotes from an Egyptian source of a, a, a wisdom source called the wisdom of Amenemope. Now that'll just float your boat. And I, I know you're going to go home and look this up on Google and try to figure this out. Amenemope, though, is the wisdom of Amenemope is a wisdom book. It's very much like the book of Proverbs. There are actually quotations from Amenemope in the book of Proverbs. That's stunning. Um, uh, the Egyptians had a long history of this. The, the Mesopotamians picked it up. Israel picked it up. Uh, uh, they were trying to teach young people how to survive, specifically young men, how to survive in a world like theirs, and especially for Egypt since they valued order, then they had all the values of order, right? Justice and... Are you with me here? Yes? They would have had different conceptions of what justice is, but that's crucial to them. Uh, but if they are so wise, they will be able to make strategy, make plans for battle that will win victories. And this is, this is borne out in the history of, e of Egypt until, goodness, how long? Until about the 9th century B.C., a good century and a half before Isaiah, until the 9th century B.C., Egypt was never invaded. They had the, they had the, the uh, desert as a great boundary to keep enemies at bay, yes? And so there were always native kings until about the 9th century B.C. 
and with the 8th century, it became even more forceful invasion from the south. With the 8th and 7th centuries, Assyria is coming in. They're going to invade, and then uh, Persia will invade, and then uh, or Babylon, then Persia, then Greece. Are you with me here? And then Rome. Yes? And trouble is breaking out. Their wisdom is breaking down. Why? Pardon? God's confusing them. Um, one of the commentators made an interesting comment at this point. The Egyptians, and I may add, and we'll say this shortly, the Egyptians and Israel thought that they had something stable they could hold on to, wisdom, that was going to give them a resource for every eventuality, eventuality that would rise in their lives. No matter what threat came in life, our wisdom, our strength is going to protect us. But when you're faced with an ultimate enemy, what is not ultimate cannot deliver. Yes? Yes? Folks, we are not facing political problems in our nation. We are facing um, faith problems. We're facing an issue of what is ultimate reality really like. Is ultimate reality what Carl Sagan said? The universe is all there is, all there ever has been, and all there ever will be. Is that true? Are we materialists? And the answer is, in an awful lot of my life, I am. Um, I live materialistically. I, I live assuming that what I see is all there really is. And this is what Jan's, where Jan, where'd you go? Oh, she left to get her lunch. Good. See, <laughs> uh, 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 this is... Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, Jan's, Jan's niece, Christy, is struggling with the issue. What, what, where is God? She's a woman of faith. She is a godly woman doing the best she can do to, to labor through a very, very horrible situation. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The, and, and so she said to me on the phone just, just a couple of days ago, she said, I feel like God's just sitting on the throne watching all this and doing nothing about it. That's when, that's, that's what being closed in with suffering does. It, it limits your perspective. You're thinking only in terms, what else can you think about in great suffering than the immediate this is painful. I don't know how to handle this. Are you with me? And I can't even tell you all of it. It's just, but but you you know from other from perhaps your experience or the experience of others, you know. And all we can hold on to is what Howard Hendricks used to say: "Never doubt in the darkness what you've learned in the light." When um, when I am faced with overwhelming circumstances that I cannot see a way through, 
the only thing I can do is the only thing I should have been doing all along, and that is going back and rehearsing the goodness of God. I was mowing the lawn one day in Oklahoma City, getting ready to move back to Texas to finish my degree at the seminary. (laughs) And it was the summer of 1980. Any of you remember the summer of 1980? What a wonderful summer that was. Uh, It's hot, over 100 degrees, and I've got to mow the lawn. There's nothing less useful to me than mowing lawns. (laughs) Yes, just... Yes, and and then our house was on the market, but the but the plumbing had backed up in the bathroom. Um, on the the people who had the house before us put carpet in the bathroom, and it was bad. It was we had our our drain pipe for the sewage was Orangeburg pipe. You know anything about orange? But yeah, thankfully it's gone the way of the dodo. But the, or- <laughs> the, or- the or- Orangeburg pipe was multi-layer tar paper, and it had collapsed. And I don't know what we were going to do. And, I- and then I had to mow the lawn. And I was just—I was just as angry as I could be. Lord, what are you doing? And why am I having to do this? And I had just preached Psalm 103 a few weeks before, and I thought. Maybe I ought to apply what I preached. When you're having trouble, go pray through these psalms. And, you know, I, I thought, what am I gonna, how am I going to praise God in this? Start with Genesis 1. Thank you, God, for making the sun that make it a lot today. <laughs> Thank you. Felt like a hypocrite. Thank you, for God, for making this grass I have to mow. <laughs> I didn't make it to Genesis 11. I was out of it. Are you with me here? By rehearsing the greatness and the goodness of God, I was finding a way through. I didn't know what the way through was going to be, but God did. Yes? One of Mother's sermons, she only had three, and she preached them over and over, was there's a ram in the thicket. Okay? Yeah. And there really is a ram in the thicket. You know what I'm referring to, of course. All right. The, the issue for us is Egypt is in confusion because... Their gods are confusion. They haven't recognized it because their gods, demons that they are, can do things in the world in answer to prayer. And being demons, they do them to enslave the people that serve them. But they can do things. And they worshiped those gods for over 3,000 years. The uh, first written literature we can read from Egypt is from 3300 BC until after the Roman era they were still worshiping the same gods are you with me here you don't keep praying the same gods if they don't do something for you at some point am I making sense to you so the the issue is they think their gods and their service of their gods is giving them strength and security and stability But they have only finite gods. And there is an ultimate god out there. And he brings confusion in Egypt. Because when you're trusting what is confusion, it has to be exposed. So going on, verse um, um, 3, they resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spiritists. 
I will deliver the Egyptians into the hands of a cruel master and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord, God of hosts. Then verse 5, um, here, here, let me just read this. Egyptian religion, especially during the Middle Kingdom and the New Kingdom, this is hundreds of years before Isaiah, exhibited a number of universalistic and monolatrous trends. But after this time, the ancient polytheisms and spiritist tendencies began to reassert themselves. That's the picture here. As the more intellectualized and conceptualized polytheisms break down under the stress of the times, the more magical, subliminal spiritism reasserts itself. This situation is not restricted to polytheistic lands. It can also happen to a land where a paganized, manipulative Yahwism is practiced. Unfortunately, some of our modern Christian life has been a materialistic, paganized, manipulative service of the Lord. Uh, Mother faced a terrible attack on her faith twice in her life. Marked her profoundly. Um, People would come to her and say, Juanita, just trust the Lord. She said, I don't know how. What they told me God was like isn't true. I don't understand him. I don't know who he is. Because we were taught, if you go to Sunday school, and you even teach Sunday school, and this was, a, this was the days of training union, so some of you will remember training union. You go to training union on Sunday night, and you're in Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You go to visitation. You're a deacon. You tithe. You go to all the revival meetings, and nothing really bad will ever happen to you. And then the Lord pulled the rug out from under mother's feet twice in her life, two major crises of faith. She was utterly unprepared for because she had a materialistic approach to God. She had a God whom you could manipulate. If you do all the right things, God will then turn around and do the right things for you, and you'll be very happy, uh, and it'll be wonderful. But that wasn't true, and there is no God like that. The only God that exists is a God who is so great and so marvelous that he wants us to enjoy that marvel and that greatness. But we can't because we have all our little images in the middle between us. And he has to remove the images, and when he does, it's devastatingly painful. Does this make any sense to you? That's what he's going to do for Egypt. And, that, and, and we're right on target for the logic of this passage. Let me take you through it. Verse 5. <clears throat> we'll go to verse 10 here with this next uh, step. So verses nine, 5 to 10. The waters uh, from the sea will dry up. The sea here is probably not the Mediterranean. The sea is probably a reference to the Nile River. Uh, the word itself, yam in Hebrew, can be used for e- any great body of water. Uh, so uh, the, the Mississippi River at Memphis is three-quarters of a mile wide. You get in it, it's the sea. <laughs> Amen? Um, so the waters of the sea will dry up and the river will be parched dry. The canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile 
by the edge of the Nile, and all the sown fields of the Nile will become dry and be driven away and be no more, and the fishermen will lament. And all those who cast a line into the Nile will mourn, those who spread nets on the waters and will pine away. Moreover, the manufacturers of linen uh, made from combed flax and the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected, and the pillars of Egypt will will be crushed. Pillars of Egypt... Not so much the pillars that held the, 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 uh, the great architecture up, but the pillars that sustained the society. The pillars of Egypt will be crushed, and all hired laborers will be, will be grieved and sold. Everything that gave is Egypt stability is gone. Uh, I read this week, uh, yeah, I read this week, there is a week in the spring, maybe... Well, so maybe you know the, the month when the uh, Nile fl- used to flood before the, before the dam was put in. Uh, it usually is uh, in the summer. Okay. What? Uh, early summer. Okay. All right. And then in the same week, roughly the same week, every year it would flood. And, and every, every year in the same week, the flood would, would, resi- would, would reside. What's the word? Re- recede. I, I'll get it out in a minute. Subside. There you are. That's what I wanted. The flood will subside. Uh, And the Pharaoh actually believed he had the power to control that. Because it always worked. Amen. (laughs) But now God's going to do something in Egypt. Egypt's perhaps never experienced. Nile River dried up. What will happen to that land you saw on the map? What will happen to the people? Well, the very thing that they thought they could count on, the Nile, is taken away from them. Verses 11 to 15. There's political disaster coming for Egypt. Verse 11. The princes of Zoan were fools. Let me go to the map here. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> Egypt is going to be the place of death. In fact, it has been, Exodus one twenty two, the place of death. And Israel is going to them for life. So, so here's the map. The princes of Zoan are mere fools. Zoan is Memphis. Not on the Mississippi. <laughs> um, the advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors have become stupid. Put this in the context of the history, the antiquity of the history of, this, of Egypt's wisdom. The advice, the advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. How can you men say to Pharaoh, I'm a son of the wise, son of ancient kings. Well then, where are your wise men? Please let them tell, uh, tell you and let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. Princes of Zoan are, I'm sorry, uh, Zoan is actually Tanis. I got it wrong here. Tanis is, uh, uh, I can't see it now, with or without my glasses. I think Tanis is up here, and then Memphis is here. I think that's right. Um, is it way down? Okay. Oh, there it is. Sure enough. It's right right at the uh, end. I, I, I'm out in the woods. I can't see. This is frustrating. I've always been able to see it, but no more. <laughs> uh, um, 
Nothing is working. He goes on. The princes of Zoan have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are deluded. The whole land, those who are the cornerstone of her tribes, have led Egypt astray. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of uh, of distortion. They have led Egypt astray in all that it does as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. There will be no work for Egypt, which is... Uh, which its head or tail, its palm branch or bulrush may do. Everything's gone. So the Bible mentions Egypt over 800 times. Why would he bother giving us this much material on Egypt? Here's here's the reason why. Um, Mentions Egypt over 800 times. As you would guess, in Exodus through Judges, you have a lot of references to Egypt because of the con- because of the Exodus. Yes, but um, 288 times in Genesis to Deuteronomy, 150 in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Um, in 62 times in Kings and Chronicles, Egypt is mentioned. I want to give you some of that. Only 25 times in the New Testament, but 25 times. <coughs> Uh, I want to give you some reasons for that. First Kings chapter 11, verse 40. Jeroboam, who, who became the first king of the northern kingdom, uh, had been a servant, had, had been an official in Solomon's uh, bureaucracy, but he got in trouble with Solomon and he ran to Egypt for refuge. When you're in trouble, remember the maps of all the nations around Egypt and Assyria looming? Yes? The one map that we didn't show is Egypt. Um, We showed it, but not in relation to the other nations. Why is this important? Egypt was the place you could go and get away from trouble. Uh, In 2 Kings 7, 6, Egypt is the presumed source of help for the northern kingdom around 800 B.C. Uh, The king attacking them says, says, "Don't, don't go to Egypt. Don't trust in Egypt. Um, 2 Kings 17, Hezekiah's reign. Apparently, in this, in this passage, no reference is made to Hezekiah directly. It's all his, his um, advisors. Folks, being a king, it's, a, it's good to be the king. Yeah? Except when your advisors are more powerful politically than you are. And so they apparently forced upon him an embassy to Egypt and in, in 2 Kings 17.4, they're, they're on their way down to Egypt to get help. And God says, they're a broken reed. If you, if you lean on them, it's going to pierce through your hand. In, um, I, I'm not going to take time to read that. Um, 2 Kings 18.21, uh, they are a presumed ally for, for Hezekiah. In, judge, in, in uh, 2 Kings 19.16-18, Egypt will be terrified at... I'm sorry, this is actually our passage. We're back to Isaiah 19. Why are we giving so much time to Egypt and to its, its weakness and confusion? Because Israel always thought that was the place to run to for refuge. Does that make sense? This is where... They enslaved you. You're going to go to them. At the end of Deuteronomy 28, a very important passage in the Old Testament... Uh, the blessings and curses of the, of the Mosaic Covenant. 
One of the last of the curses is that when you have sinned enough, I, I told you you would never go back to Egypt, but you will and you'll die there. Jeremiah is taken captive by his own people and forced to go to Egypt because they are afraid of the Babylonians and they, they run back to Egypt to find safety. And they fundamentally disappeared. So verses 16 to 18. In that day the Egyptians will become like women. Um, that's not very popular today in our statements. The, the, the point is simply, uh, you're going to put the, the, the weakest people in the army? They're not trained for war in Egypt. In any, anywhere in the ancient Near East, they weren't trained for war. So the, the, the Egyptians will become like women. They will tremble and be in dread because of the, weaving, the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. They thought about waving a, a shield and waving a sword or waving a, a, a spear. God's just going to wave his hand. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the, land, the language of Canaan. In that day, in what day? Isaiah doesn't specify it, but he prepares us for it. It's probably the day of the Lord. In the day of the Lord, there will be five cities who speak the language of Canaan. And indeed, in the passage that follows, there's a great deal of emphasis. God's taking away everything from the religious from, from Egypt and replacing it with his own religious symbols. So... Um, uh, speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts, one will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry out to the Lord because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. I think we're going to stop here. What I want you to see, and what we'll say again next week, Lord willing, is God's going to judge Egypt. He's also going to save them. And not only save them, what is astonishing is there are three nations in the, in the history of Israel that have consistently been oppressors of, of, of Israel. Egypt first, Assyria second, and Babylon third. Babylon, we've already seen the judgment chapters 13 and 14. But for Assyria and Egypt, there is salvation. Why? Because God's front purpose from the very beginning was to bless the whole human race. And his purpose, purpose from the beginning of what we would see as his special work with a special people on the face of the earth, namely the days of Isaiah, of Abraham. From that very beginning... In you shall what? All the, arm, all the peoples of the earth, all the families of the earth be blessed. So if God judges all the nations and destroys them, wipes them out, human race is not blessed. But God's purpose is blessing for the human race. It's never been judgment. It's always been purpose to bless.
So folks, if you want real help in the midst of a great storm, the only place you can go is to one who has ultimate power, who has an ultimate will, who has an ultimate plan. The only place you can go is to one who is fixed and does not move. The water will never wash the ground away from it. The tornado will never uproot it and smash it miles down the road. The only place there is hope is an ultimate hope in an ultimate person, the living God. And that's also true, brothers and sisters, for sinful people. Isn't that great? Let's close with prayer. Uh, Father, our, our sense of you is so small. And the greater you make yourself in our eyes, the more we see how small our prior thought of you was. J.B. Phillips wrote the book, Your God is Too Small, a long time ago. Still true. We still don't have the conception that we need to have so that we have a God who is ultimate and we can trust ultimately in ultimate situations. Um, Father, I don't want to have all the props torn out from under me. I don't like that. I, I want stability. And it frightens me to pray this, but, but show us your greatness. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.